Welcome to this podcast of the American Orchestra Forum, a program of the San Francisco Symphony. In celebration of the symphony's centennial, six leading American orchestras from Boston, Chicago, Cleveland, Los Angeles, New York, and Philadelphia visited San Francisco during the 2011-2012 season. In conjunction with these concerts, the American Orchestra Forum presented a series of wide-ranging conversations about the state of the orchestra, an institution with roots in the 19th century now adapting to life in the fast-changing 21st. Musicians, scholars, composers, executives, critics, and technologists gathered throughout the year to discuss three key topics, community, creativity, and audiences. Each chapter in this podcast series presents highlights from public and behind-the-scenes conversations by these experts and explores the themes that emerge. I'm Stephen Wynn, American Orchestra Forum moderator and your podcast host. For decades, nobody thought very much about them. The audience was who showed up to fill the concert hall in a largely predictable and reliable way. An orchestra scheduled and performed its subscription concerts, and the patrons came to hear them, a straightforward cause-and-effect relationship. Like many relationships in our times, this one has changed, grown more volatile, and become anything but straightforward. No one, it's safe to say, is taking the audience for granted now. Today's concertgoers we keep hearing are aging and their numbers dwindling. Some audience members feel the programs are alien, or all too familiar. Others aren't sure how to behave or can't abide their neighbor's concert manners. They crave or resist new technologies that are already affecting the live musical experience and may transform it dramatically in the years to come. Audiences want to be more involved and connected, and some of them want to be left alone to enjoy the music as they always have. But how much do we really know about this essential, complex, and sometimes paradoxical interaction between orchestra music and the public? In this chapter, we examine the dilemmas and hard questions that orchestras and audiences are confronting. We begin with some sobering numbers from Sunil Iyengar, Director of Research at the National Endowment for the Arts. According to the NEA's most recent survey, 26% of Americans say they like to listen to classical music. A smaller number, 18%, view and listen to classical broadcasts. Iyengar continues. And then when you get down to actually attending a, a classical music performance, you know, this could be choral works, symphony, mm-hmm. what have you, it's chamber music, it's, it's close to uh, 9%. Now, taking the 9%, what we see is that substantial uh, reduction from what the, the general participation rates had been in the past. It was close to uh, 13% in 1982. It's, it's down to 9% in 2008, which is the most recent period we conduct the survey. Parsed for age groups, the NEA statistics yield even more surprising evidence about the longtime stronghold of the classical music audience. While it's true that 18 to 24-year-olds have seen the sharpest decline from 1982 to 2008, really in the last time we did the survey, the sharpest decline from 2002, which is the last period, to 2008, was experienced among those 45 through 64. And so there was something that happened in 2008, particularly where a lot of the people in the baby boom generation essentially seemed to be going much less to live classical music performances than in any previous years. There's still a learning curve for all of us to understand that, but that said, it does look like we're at a point when some of the traditional audiences are maybe not going, I would venture to say, not going as much or, and it might maybe be above and beyond the time of life issue, perhaps. I mean, the other question, of course, is have people's leisure time genuinely contracted over time? Orchestra managers like Brent Osink 
executive director of the San Francisco Symphony, have seen the pattern emerge close up in their own concert halls. We've taken it as an article of faith over the years in the orchestra management biz that if somebody experiences an orchestral concert at some point in their life prior to the age of, say, 14 or so, uh, or better yet, they've played a musical instrument, mm. that they are then going to disappear from us for, say, a few decades. But when they reach that age when suddenly the house is empty and they're looking at their partner, spouse, and they're saying, what are we going to do tonight? That the <laughs> symphony starts to achieve some <laughs> relevance, some reconnectivity back to their lives. That's been received wisdom for many, many years. So when they don't come back from at the age of 45 to 64 or whatever it is, that's when we really get nervous. Or if they do come back, but they don't come back as often. Uh, we used to have them come back 12 times a year or 24 times a year. And now maybe they're coming back six times or four times yeah. or three times. So to fill this wonderful hall, uh, we have to find more people like them uh, or different types of people to fill all these seats. Ossing's colleague, Matthew Van Beeson, the 42-year-old executive director of the New York Philharmonic, suggests that what he calls the concert delivery system may require some fundamental rethinking, especially for somewhat younger audiences. When I think about my own peers, they, they love great music, they love coming in here in the orchestra, but they don't necessarily like the way in which we deliver it over the course of two and a half hours with a 20-minute break starting at 8 p.m. So it's the, the live delivery experience, and then, but also for the people who are raising children and have busy lives, are there ways that we can deliver what we do to them in some way to keep that connection over those years, which will better ensure they do come back to us um, at the appropriate time? Brent Osink. I think you're right about the delivery mechanism, that uh, we need to experiment more with how this great music is delivered to the audience. Much more context is provided. Some of the mystery is removed. Some of the times of day, the duration of the concerts, all those kinds of things need to be experimented with, such that those people in that age group who aren't coming give us a try. Many orchestras are offering multiple alternatives to the standard concert-a-date format to attract and build new audiences, new venues, different concert start times and lengths, program formats, casual dress, ticket pricing, and other initiatives are among the many variables. Finding the balance between tradition and innovation, a certain concert hall solemnity, and the quest for new means of audience access and interaction lies at the heart of the American orchestra's ongoing process of self-scrutiny. Matthew Van Beeson. I think we, we would have to admit that as orchestras, we are culpable in having nurtured and fostered uh, an air of, you know, whether you want to call it mystery or, you know, God forbid, elitism. We have fostered that, and yet now we are working to figure out how do we pull back from some of that and actually strip some of those barriers away. We have to figure out how do we still accommodate that sense of mystery, that sense of elevation, and yet provide enough opportunities to do these sort of participatory, high-impact sort of experiences. The New York Philharmonic's Alan Gilbert offers this view from the music director's perspective. It's the case, I think, with so many things, I think balance is of, of the essence. I think, you know, throwing around a word like, a word like sacred can be dangerous because it can sound unapproachable and lofty and sort of removed. I mean it in the most sort of immediate human sense. And, you know, and if that dimension can be preserved while at the same time making sure that people are not intimidated 
by the ritualistic, sort of formalized aspect of concert going. Gilbert, like Michael Tilson Thomas in San Francisco, has made some important forays outside the conventional concert format. Two of Gilbert's most significant ventures were his semi-staged productions of Ligeti's Le Grand Macabre and Janacek's Cunning Little Vixen at Lincoln Center's Avery Fisher Hall. Both were praised for a theatrical vividness and musical dynamism that expanded the listener's concert experience. Gilbert has also mounted what he calls an immersive theatrical experience in New York's colossal Park Avenue Armory, presenting spatial musical works from Mozart's Don Giovanni to Stockhausen's Gruppen, a work of extreme proportions that calls for three orchestras and conductors, and thus had never previously been staged in New York City. But even as he moves to stretch the big-picture frame of orchestral presentations, the music director also has his eye on the kind of details, from clothing to facial expressions, that can register powerfully with an audience. There are things that are often not spoken about on the orchestra side, like how the orchestra looks on stage, whether they smile or not during the bows. These, these things actually matter. Questions large and seemingly small touch on the primary issue of an orchestra's identity and how the audience perceives it. Mark Clegg, associate professor of music at the University of Michigan, puts it this way. The term orchestra has sometimes been a kind of barrier. Does it mean the institution? Does it mean the ensemble? You know, the individuals are often lost and the conductor becomes the figurehead. But we don't usually meet the other people. And technology seems like a great way to, uh, to get to know the players. Technology is emerging inexorably for today's audiences. Whether that means getting to know the musicians better through social media, new forms of electronic capture and on-demand consumption of performances, special seats for tweeting audience members, video and still projections, or other means of enhancing and supplementing the live concert hall experience. Technology is no panacea, of course, and it certainly comes with its own set of risks. In a much-discussed incident at New York's Avery Fisher Hall in January 2012, Alan Gilbert stopped a performance of Mahler's Ninth Symphony when an audience member's cell phone went off repeatedly during a hushed portion of the final movement. Gilbert reflects on that evening and its implications. There was a lot of chatter and quite a bit of coverage about the cell phone that went off uh, in our Mahler 9 concert back in January. But for me, the takeaway was that on some sort of intuitive level, people responded so strongly to that event because I think there's this kind of inherent understanding of the inviolable quality of what happens in a concert hall. I personally believe that's why it was so exciting. That's why music lovers and classical music aficionados and lay people on the street found it interesting because it, it just seemed incomprehensible. How could you stop a concert? And to me, that's actually gratifying to realize that people were disturbed by the notion that the live concert experience was interrupted. In Cleveland, where that city's orchestra has set the ambitious goal of building the youngest audience in the country by the year 2018, technology is bound to be an important part of the path ahead. But when the idea of tweet seats came up in a roundtable conversation, the idea got a quick thumbs down from both board president Dennis Labar and principal flutist Joshua Smith. Cleveland's executive director, Gary Hansen, expressed reservations about other interactive technologies. In my opinion, anything which attempts to be a visual enhancement to a concert experience suffers from the idea of the director, because the director is telling you what to listen to by telling you where to point your mm -hmm. eyes. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, that's not how that's not how great music is constructed. Elizabeth Scott, chief media and digital officer of the Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, is a great advocate for the potential of technology to extend, enrich, and enlarge the audience experience. She honed her thinking about the ticket-buying public in her previous post as vice president for Major League Baseball Productions. Everything from concert hall video projections to backstage documentaries to cell phone apps brimming with supplementary text, music, video, and voice are among the many possibilities. But as Scott continues, the challenge is to find ways that use technology to expand the concert experience, not replace it. We should not have a narrow notion of what it means to participate in, a, in, in the performance. That's, that's really what it's about. Because that magical moment where wrapped, we all sit here and it's afterwards it's like, wow, we all just experienced that. Which doesn't happen every night, but when it does, it is unparalleled. That can't be the only thing. I don't think it should be the only thing we're aspiring to because there will be, and there are, other ways to feel like you're participating as an audience member. And, and honestly, if we don't give those to the audience members, I think it, that will be at our peril. According to Scott, professional sports organizations have discovered that making their content available across multiple media platforms has actually corresponded with greater attendance at live events, not less, as many in the performing arts have feared. Scott frames the larger issue concisely. If you give exciting ways in through media, you'll want to come in the hall. The San Francisco Symphony's Brent Osink knows that these kinds of questions will continue to shape the evolving relationship between art and audience in the years ahead. So one of the things that we all struggle with is uh, that there are so many doors into the art form of the orchestral music that we're not sure which doors we should have open at the same time. Mm. I feel personally that having screens above the audience is a terrific experience, but it is a different experience. So it's a little bit like if I were listening to, say, the Beethoven Third Symphony performed by the symphony, but I was following along in the score. I would enjoy it, but it would be a different experience. And so I think sometimes we, we struggle with, like I said, which doors to have open, which ones will speak to which audience, which ones will frankly turn off which audience. We have a lot of conversations in this building about who we really are and who we are going to be in the future and what that all means for the delivery of this art form. Our conversation about audiences and how their experience may continue to shift and grow in the 21st century continues in Chapter 9 of this American Orchestra Forum podcast series. We invite you to join the conversation with America's leading orchestras by visiting the American Orchestra Forum website at symphonyforum.org. There you will find blog posts, videos, transcripts, and more. The American Orchestra Forum is made possible by a grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. The theme music is from John Adams' Short Ride in a Fast Machine, performed by the San Francisco Symphony and available from SFS Media on CD or as a download. This podcast is copyrighted 2012 by the San Francisco Symphony. I'm Stephen Wynn. Thanks for listening.